Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Troiano, joined always by Stephen Canistracy. Hello. This is episode 37, and today we're speaking with Bernhard Kirchner. Bernhard is with the Dodworth Saxhorn Band in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He's been with them since 1998 as the solo E-flat horn player. He was also the curator for the instruments for the band, as well as serving as the arranger for the band. So we had a really awesome chat with him, getting to hear about his backstory and his experiences with the Darworth Saxhorn Band, in addition to getting to hear the history of the 19th century original Darworth Saxhorn Band. So we're really excited to share this discussion with you today. Yeah, it was definitely great to get finally get someone um, from Dodworth on the show. Um, we think you'll really enjoy um, all the history and the stories that he has uh, about the band. So if you like what you're hearing, you can support the show on Patreon. That's the easiest way to do it. Um, and we also have a Teespring store where there's some physical merchandise up there if you'd rather do it that way. Um, and then something that's free, it doesn't cost you anything, is supporting us over on YouTube. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel, which really helps uh, spread the show to a wider audience. And we're also on social media, so you can give us a follow on all the social media platforms. That way you can stay up to date with everything that we release and all news related to the show. And without further ado, here is episode 37 with Bernhard Kirchner. <laughs> Thank you so much to Bernard Kirchner for coming on to the Early American Brass Band podcast. We really appreciate you coming on and taking the time to share with us your experiences with Early American Brass Bands and the Dogworth Saxhorn Band. So thank you for coming on. Oh, glad to be here. I was totally uh, flabbergasted that anybody would even call me about this sort of thing. I'll tell you what. <laughs> well, we're excited to talk to you. I know I've been listening to y'all's CDs for a long time now, so it's really exciting to to finally get to to talk to somebody from the band and and the arranger at that. You know, so we'll get to talk about your music and some of the history of uh yeah. of your group and, and the historical group as well. Uh so so speaking of yourself and getting to learn a little bit about you, can we maybe hear a little bit about your musical background and maybe leading up into how you became interested in this world of early brass music? Yeah, it's, uh, well, you got two to three years. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, anyway, so, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up with uh, German parents. They're both from Germany. My dad was, some, you know, a good amateur. He learned accordion and the guitar and harmonica. I also liked to sing tenor. Uh, my mom, however, had a different story. Now, her dad, my grandfather, um, was quite a good pianist. And he had made sure that he wanted all his kids to learn piano. He had nine of them. Uh, unfortunately, mom was stubborn because she saw a movie that that had uh, a girl playing trumpet. Hmm. And she goes to dad, I want to play trumpet. Dad says, <laughs> you need to learn piano. I want to play trumpet. So it goes back and forth. And he says, well, you can't play trumpet because that's, that's not a girl's instrument. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, 1940s Germany, you know. Right. Sorry. Anyway. So, anyway. But you know, there was always classical music playing in my house, as well as German popular music, for that matter. And uh, so I 
stuff like the, in America, I mean, uh, that pretty much got covered up <laughs> in our household. Not to say it was a bad thing, but it was always classical music, which is great. You know, I, mm-hmm. I still enjoy listening to that all the time. Uh, and then, okay, so we'll just go through some of my thing here. Um, it's the mid-70s, and of course, they had the oil embargo, so parents decided to move down south, get better jobs. You know, jobs are more secure where there's more jobs to be had. Mm-hmm. Michigan, they sort of dried up. But then we come back with and uh, luckily, uh, we moved back to a district here in Michigan at Livonia that's still allowed beginning band in seventh grade. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so I picked the trumpet because basically it was the most popular. You know, yeah. <laughs> of the I mean, it was, it was only like a handful of us, too. I remember an oboe, a couple of percussion, a girl wanted to play trombone. Um, anyway, a bunch of others. And in the meantime, in that same year, I got braces. So that. Yeah, oh, yeah. Kind of mixed me up. I, the same same year I start playing, I'm getting mixed up. But with that, but nonetheless, it, I still seem to have a talent for it. And I was like, this is weird, you know. <laughs> now, now the family moves at the end. Our family moved again at the end of that year, uh, school year, in the springtime. So now the new band director I get is I mean, here in South Lyon, Michigan, and uh, that director that at the time was Tom Young, and uh, between him and his uh, colleague frank Achalco, they were like one of the tops at least in this area anyway he unfortunately he could not have me in band right away because his the van was going on a trip to dc or somewhere i forget mm-hmm. exactly so all i could do was sit in the office until they got back and then when he come back he, i borrow a horn but i'm having a heck of a time with it uh this is all leading into what's coming up ne- obviously next so what he has me do so now I have to sit in his office for the next two weeks because I couldn't really play the stupid braces and all that. Mm-hmm. We're not we're not letting me uh, play as well as I did like just even a month ago. So what he has me do is he's here, take this mouthpiece, buzz five minutes, take a break, 10, 15, 20 minutes or something like that, buzz again. And then, you know, before the end of class, try to get one more session of just buzz one note, one or two notes. Don't worry about nothing else, just buzz. Okay. And after a couple of days of this, I see on his diction on his uh on his desk, excuse me, is that he has a dictionary of music. Just one little nice fat volume by Willie Appel. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, I'm gonna start reading what the heck, you know? Why not? <laughs> and I almost get through cover to cover before the end of the two weeks. Uh and what's interesting about this, this is the first time I see any glimpse of antique instruments, mm, including go. guess what? Sax horns. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's a seventh grader or eighth grader, whatever it might be at this time, aware of the all these antique instruments. Yeah. Well. You know, serpents, corn, and sax horns. And I'm like, wow, this is some fun, fancy stuff going on here. <laughs> you know, this is really cool. Yeah. Okay. And, and that kind of just went away after that. But anyway, so he lets me play in class and it, it ends up, you know, by summertime, he says, you know what? You probably, the braces are still probably get, uh, giving you some problems. Here, take this tw- this fat recording, you know, tuba, a 20J with three valves, you know, the real thick, heavy ones. Yeah, yeah. Here, take this home for the summer and, and uh, let it loosen you up. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I'll just take the thing with me. So I was taking lessons still on trumpet and played that another few, a couple more years. Let's, we'll fast forward to like 10th grade now. In, in 10th grade, the first year I get to see what French horns are. Hmm. Now, I probably, I still had that in my, that, classical sound in my ear i just didn't know what it really looked like yeah sure mm-hmm. yeah i'm like wow this thing is backwards <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah 
but well, you figure with the thumb valve, you know, that's the reverse of your fourth valve on a euphonium if you're using four valves. That's right. And that that just twisted my brain around for quite a while. Hmm. But I, uh, oddly enough, I kept it going. And I got to play an interlock in an all states for two summers as a euphonium player, even sitting first chair. Hmm. Uh, and then the senior year of my high school, uh, the the tuba player was on her way out. It was still it was actually a girl. She was on her way out, and I got to jump in and play tuba now. Nice. And I took that over the summer and started learning that uh, before senior before my senior year started. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, of course, I went to interlock. And then in the and then uh, so now it comes to, to time to decide for uh, what school I want to go to. So I, I okay whatever I figured out I auditioned at U at the Eastern Michigan, and that's where I took my trumpet. And uh, a horn and a tuba over there audition <laughs> for some for some scholarship money, you know. Right. I figured, okay, let's see what I can find, you know. Yeah. Now here comes this guy right in front of me. He's from Detroit. He's a real hot shot. He's got all four of his trumpets, and he plays like flawlessly. And he's like 18, 19 years old, not even yet. He brings an accompanist. I didn't think of meant to bring a pianist at all. I go in there and I pretty much drop that thing all over the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, it just uh, yeah, I just totally stunk on trumpet, and, everybody, and the committee's looking at me going, "Yeah, that wasn't your best, was it today?" Yeah, <laughs> oddly enough, horn was my best, which was weird, but I didn't know how to read horn music yet. <laughs> hmm. I played a trumpet piece on it. Interesting, on the horn, and then mm-hmm. they they kind of liked my tuba skills. I mean, I did get a one at the festival just not that long ago, mm-hmm. and I'd only been playing tuba for a few months. Yeah. So they did like both of those, but I picked up, they said, oh, I think horn was your best audition. I'm like, cool. Guess I'm going to be a horn player. Yeah. <laughs> now I got to go home and learn how you. to play. Yeah. yeah. So now I got to go home and figure out how to play horn uh, parts, you know, which is another brain twister uh, in itself. Right. Yeah. And then go back to interlock and still play euphonium as well. Yeah. Well. <laughs> that was just goofy. And uh, so I, uh, so I started as a horn major and a tuba minor uh, yeah. at, 1985 at Eastern Michigan. Uh, now, while I was there, I took all the instrument classes. It didn't matter what it was. I mean, they did have a minimum. You had to take at least, you know, one of each mm-hmm. of style, whether it was a brass or wind or a percussion and so on. I took them all. I didn't care. And I even learned bassoon enough I could play uh, in, a, in a wind quintet as a wow. bassoon player. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Guess what they put on the stand right in front of me the first year, first day. Like Poulonk or something. Poulonk Swiss tour? Yeah. Poulonk Swiss tour. Yeah. 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 And I'm the bassoon player. I'm looking at this. I'm going, oh my God. Okay. Oh, can, can I have my real part now? Yeah, really. Yeah. <laughs> nope. That was it. Oh, so we had to play it for recital. And I'm like, oh, joy. Somewhere I could still find that program. I, I didn't look for it. Oh, nice. my. But yeah, I got, to, so I, I took all the instrument classes from top to bottom, you know, whatever they were strings, all the string classes, and so on. And in the meantime, I'm still kind of learning in the background about all the uh, antique instruments and stuff. And since mm-hmm. I'm being a horn major, I get to play, you know, natural horn stuff, too. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm just getting totally immersed.
Uh, one day I'm visiting a private re instrument repairman, uh, his shop, which was, was near U of M at the time, in Michigan, that is. And he has all these brass instruments in whatever shape and size and age and whatever all over his shop. I mean, you name it, he practically had, it. you know, double bell euphoniums of all sorts. And I couldn't think of it. can't think of all of them. Mm -hmm. So he, and I says, wow, these are really cool. You know, you mind if I try a couple? He's like, okay, go ahead. You know, I'll pick up a couple. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just playing a couple of things on it. At one point he hands me a, um, an over the shoulder alto sax horn. Mm -hmm. Okay. And he says, Hey, I bet you can't play a scale on this. And I'm like, all right, whatever. So he gives me a thing and I play a scale flawlessly. And he looks at me and he says, that's not possible. <laughs> and, <laughs> like, and I'm like, okay, I don't know, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. You know, oddly enough, fate was realized that day, but it was, I uh, didn't know about it for, for another few years. <laughs> and then, uh, it was really strange. I mean, that, and I'd still go there, get my horns repaired, you know, but he had these mm -hmm. still, and I didn't know that he was playing in the Dodworth band. Hmm. on this horn on that particular horn hmm. um i just didn't know that but he hmm. was he's still an excellent repairman we still go to him uh it's not tim holmes um hmm. all right so before i left for master's school in 93 after i graduated uh, emu uh i see on on a, a news article with a photo of the dodworth band that'll be the new faction mm -hmm. on my tuba professor's door and I'm like, wow, this is cool. How cool is that? You know, mm -hmm. and then I see him as soon as I next time I saw him, I says, hey, if you want me to sub, you know, let me know. I'd be really interested in figuring this out. So he's like, yeah, OK, sure. But I didn't get anything. Mm -hmm. uh, so at master's school, uh, Akron, I'm assigned to play first horn in the orchestra and I also play kids concerts. Uh, in a brass quintet the first year and in a woodwind quintet the second year. And I did arrangements for both. For uh, various reasons, and while I was there, uh, I also took a few lessons on tuba with Tucker Jolly. So, mm. and uh, he said I sounded like a tuba player who hadn't been playing in a while. <laughs> <laughs> Better than not a tuba player at all, right? <laughs> well, but I could play. But people who would listen to me in the horn studio would be impressed that I was playing the thing at all, yeah. including some of the tuba students, grad students. You know, I was kind of, and, and, and then I even got hired to play as a sub on both tuba uh, at one point for community orchestra. I got played, to, got paid to play trombone. I even got play, paid to play trom uh, recorders. By this time, I had picked up five sizes of recorders from Sopranino and that bass. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so I, I learned them pretty well. So on another recital with my brass quintet. I, we played this medley of tunes by G.W.E. Friedrich. Mm -hmm. I still have that program somewhere. I, I didn't, I couldn't find it in time. And you, and you know, Friedrich was a bandsman. And he also wrote the Brass Band Journal, mm -hmm. uh, compiled that, right? Mm -hmm. And he would also take uh, and uh, make slower tunes into marches and stuff like that yeah. or other dance forms. Uh, so by 96, I'm, I've graduated and I've, I'm back and I'm playing horn in the in area groups. And uh, so I'm working as a, you know, a brass specialist, as you can kind of imagine at this point, you know, I'm getting hired to play all these brass instruments. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've gotten a really unique path uh, 
that have somehow carved out mostly by, by circumstance. Yeah. You know? It seems like your experience with playing all the different brass and even woodwinds and the, the uh, experience on all these different instruments really is, you know, like you were saying, helped with your marketability, but also probably gave you the proper insight into creating really good arrangements you know you knew all the idiosyncrasies of each instrument you knew you knew ranges you knew technical limitations and i'm sure that really helped uh with your writing as well even clough reading i actually learned to read tevner clough back in high school Mm. on my own yeah So, so it seems like through your your musical career, through your masters and everything, the Dodworth Saxhorn band was kind of always like peering over your shoulder and like kept on like kind of creeping you know? up and, and was always kind of there. So maybe before we we dive into your more hands on experience with that band and and talking about the band as it exists today, maybe we can talk a little bit about who that band was historically and some of the historical figures that were associated with that band in the nineteenth century. Absolutely. Uh, certainly. So the original Dodworth people, eventually it was, well, husband and wife, though, but four four brothers, including the father. Uh, you don't really hear about the women. You're not supposed to talk about the women. That's just the thing they were supposed to do, just kind of be seen, but not necessarily heard. Yeah, unfortunately. Or talked about. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that is. But he, I mean, uh, the father did write like a polka in her name. It's Callie Polka. Her name is actually Kalantha. Anyway, uh, so it's the Dodworths, uh, Thomas Sr., uh, Alan and Harvey, both also born in the Sheffields. Uh, they're all, they immigrated from Sheffields in the 18, early 18, 1820s. And then uh, Charles and Thomas Jr. were born here as well as I know of one sister. There's possibly two. I couldn't remember. But we, we'll talk, I'll talk about Mary later on. It's, a, it's kind of part of the newer faction of this, this type sure. of band. Yeah. Yeah. So, but uh, she's she's important if nowadays. Yeah. Uh, so I will talk about Mary. Too bad. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, um, okay. So they had, uh, did a um, immigrate from Sheffield Islands. Um, this family, mm-hmm. and they joined what was called the Independent Band at the time, and then they also uh, took over another one called the. Castle Garden Band, which was made up of uh, curiously black musicians, all black mm. musicians. Mm. Strangely enough. So, but now they they kind of joined both of those bands together, renamed it the uh, National Brass Band, and eventually it became the Dodworth Band after mm. a few more years. Mm. Now, these guys were exceptionally talented people. They all played different instruments, whether it be a string or a flute or a cornet, be a fife. Um, and they also composed music. And I'll give you a story about how talent. Here's a quick one. So Alan, the the oldest son. Uh, so they now let's say that uh, yes, yeah, they were in the what's at the point time was called the National Brass Band. Mm-hmm. And one of the the principal bugle player at the time decided he didn't want to play the next show. So that gave him like three days. And they still wanted to play the show. So Alan says, I'll do it, you know. But he had only been playing trombone. He's only like a kid. He's not, I don't think he was a teenager at the time. Mm-hmm. So uh, he take, 
Somebody gives him an E-flat cornet. He's never played this thing before. And he starts practicing like a madman on the thing. And by the time the concert rolls around three like, three days later, you thought he'd been playing it forever. Yeah. That's the kind of talent these these this family was. Yeah. Okay. So they could they could uh, literally be chameleon musical chameleons in terms of instruments too, mm-hmm. which is really I thought that was really cool. And then Harvey, we saw here, he became the director finally of the what was then the Dow, finally called the Dodworth Band at the age of sixteen. He's the one waving the stick, Mm -hmm. but he was still a fabulous cornetist as well as a fife player, flute player, violin player. Um, They had a national reputation. Uh, They also ran the music scene throughout New York for nearly 60 years. So between the 1830s and the 90s, when finally uh, Harvey had finally passed away, Mm -hmm. Uh, his younger brother is still around till after 1900. Uh, Charles, I think it was. Uh, and then on his epitaph uh, for Harvey, is he is considered the father of American brass uh, band music, hmm. which is really cool. And their reputation, they made sure that they were known for their clarity, refinement, professionalism, and all overall excellence. And I'll give you a quote even from Patrick Gilmore when he finally uh, was in swing, per se, hmm. uh, in the early 1870s. Uh, so he would say he had said something. Brass instruments were never played with greater delicacy or refinement than by the Dodworth organization. To be a member of this organization or to be graduated from it was to be looked upon as a star in the profession. That's a great quote. So yeah. that, that's definitely a compliment coming from Gilmore. Oh, for we, sure. You know, understand his uh, reputation later on in this uh, this particular century. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So in addition to their you know, high reputation. They they ran the music scene from top to bottom. They 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 imported music, of course, composed music. They had better times than others, and my uh, biased opinion, I guess. Of course, they designed their iconic horn, mm-hmm. which we'll get to in a minute. Um, they're they're importing dances. Oh, they ran three dance academies, and Alan, the oldest son, was primarily the person who run those academies i once bought a manual with it with uh, that he had wrote and uh, it was from 1900 uh, like one of the last copies i can't find mm-hmm. it i think but even at his, the, so his academies were around so long that even the roosevelts no when they were before they even became famous yeah. were involved in uh, learning dance from dodworth's academy mm-hmm. they also had a music store they ran a publishing company uh yeah, and they also trained. I don't know if these numbers are right, but this is what I got. They trained about 500 bandsmen and 50 band leaders for the military. Nice. Wow. Okay. Now they they didn't sell they themselves. Now most bands, uh, somehow for some reason had to attach themselves to some kind of military faction for whatever mm-hmm. reason. Still beyond me personally. Uh, so but Dodworth did not. Although they mm-hmm. did serve in the military for three months, uh, this is this is documented. Um, so, yeah, at the second bull, the second battle of Bull Run or Manassas, mm-hmm. and there's a cute story that Harvey would like to t- look tell at the time. He says, "So we're helping with the wounded. They don't really go out and actually be in the battles themselves. Yeah, but they mm-hmm. would help with the casualty issues and stuff like that." 
so one guy uh, is laying on the ground. Harvey comes by, and he's helping him. He's helping cleaning him up. His ankle is in tatters, and uh, the guy is, uh, says he, he looks at Harvey's belt and he sees a horn hanging from it. And he's going, "Hey, Mister, is that an E flat?" Why, well, yes, it is. Ah, oh, I used to play one. <laughs> so they became fast acquaintances for the day, but after that, they don't know anything about them. Uh, hopefully, you made it. <laughs> they were, they talked the rest of the day, as far as you know. But he says, "I never, I don't know what happened to the poor fellow after that." Uh, yeah. So that that's definitely certainly a documented story on that part. Mm -hmm. And then they also wrote a uh, brass band school. Alan, Alan Dodworth was mainly responsible for that one. Mm -hmm. And uh, in there is, is uh, all kinds of things about, you know, how to set up a band, how to, what kind of instrumentation and various um, for, forms that you can take as a band, whether you're marching or on the field or whatever the case may be and how to behave <laughs> mm -hmm. and lots of their arrangements, of course, in it too. Mm -hmm. So, and then, so there's that. Uh, and they, like I said, they were very versatile musicians. They could function as a cornet band. They didn't like to call themselves necessarily a bugle band or necessarily a brass band. They call themselves a, a cornet band. Mm -hmm. uh, they, but since they were also versatile as strings, and then they were the, among the first to employ people who were reed players, like saxophones, clarinets, or flutes, mm -hmm. even, even uh, circular brass, helicons. Mm -hmm. uh, they could be employed as soloists. And provide music for all occasions. I mean, if they're also importing horns and stuff, they could also provide the instruments for all the occasions too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they were around long enough. They played for different. They played the inaugurations for ten, ten different presidents. And what if it wasn't for them, they wouldn't. Uh, the New York Philharmonic would have not started at least not as soon as it did, which was 1842. And at least three of them played in the first concert, and that was definitely Harvey. On first chair cornet, as well as uh, Piccolo, his brother Charles on violin, and then the dad, Thomas Sr., who played trombone, who was also the treasurer for New York Bill mm -hmm. wow. back in the 1840s. Hmm. Yeah. They also started weekly concerts in the Central Park in, on Manhattan Island. Mm -hmm. um, they paved the way for all the touring bands coming down the line now, which would be Gilmore, of course, and Sousa, who was born in 1854. Mm -hmm. uh krill and there was a couple more i can't remember right now and they only had two actual rivals and one was grafula from spain and it, who arrived late 1850s early 1860s and he was a fat, fine arranger knew his craft very well so he was and then his band was the seventh seventh regiment mm -hmm. um to see how they got like i said they got to get tied to a some kind of military thing mm -hmm. And so he, that was definitely one rival that they had, but you know, all that time before that, they were pretty much the scene. Yeah, and then yeah. Gilmore coming in the late 1870s, and they definitely paid their members quite well. And then, uh, well, even even a band such as with their caliber, they would, you know, something sometimes it can go stale. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So at one point they collect they they uh they knew of gilmore and they collaborated collaborated with the guy and uh 1879 and here's a copy of that article hmm. it says 
they're they were buying uh, this garden. It was actually Gilmore's Garden, is what they called it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a wealthy brewer placed a hundred thousand at their disposal, and they were going to uh, have a band consisting of at least at least and it's under it's uh, in um, italics at least one hundred twenty three trained instrumentalists under the personal leadership of Mr. Dodworth. No. So imagine a band that size playing these type of horns. You know, that's mm. that's not exactly quiet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I know uh, Gilmore's Garden eventually turned into Madison Square Garden in New York. Yeah, good point. Good yeah. there. So that's what it was. Ha- that's what it did before. Was uh, you know Gilmore, Gilmore, um, and them collaborated at least for one thing, and that was in eight, like I said, eighteen seventy nine. So even the Dodworth band at that point was starting to fade slowly but it took another mm-hmm. almost 15 years 10 mm-hmm. to 15 years before oh the sax horns were only sold in uh sears catalog yeah and and it, it pretty much not not anymore mm-hmm. and it's really sad that none of this is actually taught in music history and at, at i mean you could spend an entire semester on this stuff I'm not yeah. kidding yeah. so and then of course uh but with their invention per se, I mean, they didn't actually make that horn by themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, their yeah, iconic sack horn, or their, which is the, it all got lumped in. I'll tell you that about that in a second. They started with something in the middle, like an mm-hmm. alto and yeah, a tenor, with the over-the-shoulder right. variety. Yeah, right. And that that patent came about in 1838. Dodworth's horn creation, like that, um, was the first instance of what's now lumped in together as sax horn shouldn't have been he wanted to call it and he gave this weird french 1100s hittite name nova ibor corno okay new york horn is how it translates nova mm-hmm. new ibor or depending on how you spell it sometimes it goes back and forth between e-b-o-r or e-b-e-r gotcha. corno so new york horn it's how it comes out but the name never really stuck yeah. uh, but he was they were they were adamant about keeping it as a new york horn I mean, the horns that they they designed did not, of course, weren't like everybody was like all gung ho for them. That people are like, oh, a lot of harumphing going on for some reason. Now we got to have this horn. We, oh, we got to have that. whatever. Yeah. Now then we find, find people started to copy that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And then, and of course, on the other side of the pond, you get our uh, esteemed uh, other guy, Mister S- Mr. Sachs. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So him, so him and his brother and his uh, father were all instrument builders. Now, in terms of Sax's idea, now remember he was uh, contracted for the French military, and that, and then, so he took bugles, okay, and he just made the improvements such that they would point upright, especially because they were still sitting um, on horseback. Mm. the picture now. So you had an example, and then he liked the ones with the, the Berliner fat piston. Mm-hmm. If you're familiar with those. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but pe- people would start to copy that and put all different kinds of things on uh, type of valve clusters on there, whether it be a, the Omen's uh, Vienna valve or uh, the canister valve by Blumel, which we know is a rotary valve, but mm-hmm. the, back then it was called a canister valve, or mm-hmm. ventila, which was the two, the was a clappers inside of a a chamber, a box, a rectangular chamber, hmm. all kinds of stuff like that. So he came up with a, a similar idea for the for the French military. 
and his patent for sax horn was 1846. Hmm. So six from 1848 to 46, eight years difference mm-hmm. between what Dodworth came up with compared to what uh, Mr. Sachs came up with first. Yeah. Okay. And then, of course, two years later, he came up with that other weird aberration uh, that he's famous for, of course, the saxophone, <laughs> which is really a hybrid of four different instruments, if you ever think about it. You have a clarinet reed. Yeah. You have a clarinet reed on a key bugle body but the key work the system that is is a combination of both recorder and oboe hmm. yeah well and yeah. Uh, 1848 was the first patent for that and he gave that was uh um there was a world's fair at the time and that's where it, where it was first brought out I was kind of wondering what, um, you know, kind of the, if if you want to call it the, the end of the, the old, you know, the historical Dodworth saxophone band, did they, did that, did they just kind of, you know, um, the the times changed and, and, you know, they kind of petered out like you were saying earlier. Yeah. uh, Yeah. The end of the Dodworth era uh, was brought about. Let let me just put it this way. The price of progress is progress itself. Mm-hmm. sometimes so remember they were, they've been around now 60 years close to 60 years you know played with all these presidents did all this fabulous work um now but not so like i said they paved the way for the touring band so like people like souza and i have a picture of his dad um and i've, I've talked with uh Sousa number four too mm-hmm. uh john philip and his mm-hmm. dad his name was antonio Anyway, uh, so you got touring bands for like Gilmore and stuff. So they 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 uh, they kind of took over that scene. So now, and certainly now that we had the railroad too, it was very easy to go on tour. Yeah, true. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how far they toured. That's none of my business. But mm-hmm. I know. But even Dodworth had their national reputation, which they have held for the longest time. Mm-hmm. But now you got these these other ones, and their their musicianship skills were really, really, really good. You know, and imagine getting paid like by Jules Levy, who made ten thousand in a year, just mm-hmm. playing his cornet. But that was eighteen eighties money. Yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And eighteen nineties money. He did that for quite a while. I mean, he didn't have he didn't have to move. You know, they could yeah. literally wheel him out, and that was. Play this mm-hmm. show and then we'll wheel, get wheeled back home, as it started to say. Yeah. Sort of so, musicianship and then um, scale of availability, as well as being able to travel more mm-hmm. easily, you know. So, they then, and then sax horns were no longer in favor. We're starting to see the improvements in all in the horns on all levels. Mm-hmm. So, there, so there was that too. So yeah, you know, like I said, the last time you saw a sax horn being sold was in the Sears catalog in 1895. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the uh, you, it just you, it just progressed from there. You know, you got more improved horns. You know, Charles Kahn comes on the scene in 1875 mm-hmm. uh, and starts making his uh, horns and stuff like that. It's, it's just you know the, the the refinement of the brass is still continuing even today. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. You know, in terms of manufacture, and then of course 
you know, the skill levels are still still improving. You have no idea what you're going to run into uh, nowadays. Uh, certainly, if, if you've heard of Sergei Nakarikov, you know, you could just play the play the thing like he's smoking a cigarette. You don't know. <laughs> he's yeah, just yeah. like, you, you just, it's amazing what people can come up with. For sure. You had mentioned by the end of the Dodworth band, uh, they had been bringing in select woodwinds as primarily soloists. At, at the end, were they considered a mixed band of woodwind and brass, like more they, like even kind of like a, like a Gilmore band, or was it still primarily brass with just a few woodwinds sprinkled in? There, they were among the first to hire woodwind players in the mid 1850s, in the 1850s or so. Um, now they still saw themselves more as a brass group, mm-hmm. a cornet band. Really, it was a the thing. But yeah. they were, like I said, they were so flexible and versatile. They didn't mind it to have. If you wanted just a, a faction of just reeds and brass mm-hmm. at some function, they would be happy to provide you with that. Or if you need string band or a full orchestra yeah. or something like that. Makes sense. It, yeah. But uh, certainly Harvey's uh, mind was on the brass, uh, the cornet band, the brass mm. end. Of it. Gotcha. Uh, Alan's mind was more of the dance academies. And then the younger brothers, they helped wherever they could, mm-hmm. whether they were in the, in the music store or at the publishing house. Or playing whatever they would, were playing, whether it be trombone or fife or cornet or whatever else they were doing. Mm-hmm. No, and I guess that we don't hear about Mary, whatever she he or, or the wife played, she mm-hmm. played, or, or the, her mother played. So we don't know anything about that. Yeah. So unfortunately, the band folded, yeah, it, disappeared, and then it was, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was. I guess it's time. Everything runs out after it's time, and when the time is up. Yeah, but then for, fortunately for us, there was a a 20th century <laughs> resurrection of the band. Can we maybe now transition into both what and why <laughs> the band is uh, today? And and then that can transition sure. back into your involvement and how you got involved with the yeah. group after after your master's and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. All yeah. right. So here we go to uh, 1985. Um then this is the new Dodworth band. Now uh, it wasn't called that at first, but mm-hmm. is this will start this back in summer of 1985. Now, just prior to that, uh, the uh, person who thought this up first, his name is Alex Pollock. And he is a Detroit city architect. This is a guy who would, if you need a building put up in a certain way in town, down Detroit, he was the man or at least his office to go to. Yeah. But he was also fascinated by antique brass too, and he had a, a fair, fairly sizable collection that I understand at the time of these antiques, hmm. the sax horns. So um, Alex Pollock here, he would like to visit over Henry, uh, the Henry Ford, the Greenfield Village, and they have a collection in the back of stuff from like 1830s and 40s of instruments and certain. I mean, they have a huge collection of stuff. Hmm. Uh, and uh, luckily I got to visit one time. Anyway, he would go, and the curator at the time was Bob Eliason, uh, and he's a tuba player, and he's now living in Connecticut, I think. Hmm. Anyway, they would they would collaborate, they would, uh, get together and stuff, and finally they said, you know what, why don't we try to play some of these ones? What the heck, you know? <laughs> so that's kind of started in, in uh, the summer of 85, and that's where it's First, and they wanted a living history project. Hmm. Okay, so they, uh, 
there was another band at the time. It was called the Fifth Michigan. They're still around, but they're they're kind of uh, laying low, quite low right now too. Mm-hmm. And so they grabbed some people from there to start help with that uh, to help with Alex's product project now. Okay, so they got it going. I got a few people, and some people. They, if Alex would uh, either sell or let them let them people borrow horns for a while until they could buy them. And originally they called themselves the Detroit Light Guard Band. Again, thinking with that military, I don't know why. Um, oddly enough, some legal issues because of the name arose so they couldn't do that uh in the meantime they got the first uniforms that they were wearing at the time in 80 in the mid 80s here is um they were a donation i think uh somehow alex persuaded the detroit street railway to donate some older uniforms and these were kind of small with really really short hats hmm. and they also had dsr across the top on the hat. So with that in mind, you know, you can't go out and say Detroit Light Guard Band, but you have DSR on the front <laughs> of your head. <laughs> so they changed it to they uh so Alex understood some of the history from what I understand. I, I wish I would have met this man years ago. I still haven't. He's still around. But he understood some of the history with Dodworth. So he said Dodworth Saxhorn for the horn reserve band. Hmm. And then on and on one of the drum heads, that's still it's still printed on there hmm. uh, in our collection. Nice. So, but again, with the legal stuff, okay. So they couldn't use the word, they couldn't use the uniforms anymore. <laughs> I guess some of the old railway workers, because you remember, if, if you've you've ever been in the Detroit before 1980s, or they still had, there's still plenty of the the rails from the streetcars hmm. going throughout the city. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, and yeah, so those people, of course, would have worked on those street trolleys. And I guess they had a real problem with somebody borrowing their uniforms. Gotcha. I don't know. So I had to give them back. So eventually they just, uh, they got new other uniforms that look somewhat military, but not really. Uh, they could pass in, you know in, for civilian as well as military. They they looked a bit more military style because they only buttoned till about your belly button, and then it was wide open. Got Whatever. It. And eventually d- dropped the word reserve, except for the one on the drum. So That's nowadays right. we dress more like I do right now. I would still have a frock coat, mm-hmm. but it's more of a civilian style frock coat. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or the ladies that we have in our band have the choice. Of dressing with the vest and tie and the nice uh, shirt, mm-hmm. or they could uh, employ our dress uniform manager to see if they can come procure a dress. Mm-hmm. Very light, simple. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say peasant dress, but it was you know, something you would wear. You might find in, in small town America in that time. Yeah, okay. uh, I think I guess that's more appropriate also for you guys because the, as you were saying, the original Sax uh, Dodworth band was only really military for those three months around the time of the second battle of Manassas, right? They didn't really have that strong military affiliation during no. their time. Yeah. No, they were, they were too busy training them. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Seriously. They were too busy training the military to be in the military. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Though, if you look at their uniforms, now they designed their own uniforms too. They had at least five different designs from what I understand. Hmm. They kind of look military. 
I mean, if you looked at a military, I mean, I'm not talking like, a, you know, a rebel uniform or, or a, you know, Yankee uniform, but they had a military like style to them. Mm-hmm. You know, if you you've seen the picture now a couple of times with Harvey, right? That, that's mm-hmm. pretty pretty uh, square and you know and stuff like that. Yeah, that's true. You know, form fitting. Uh, and you know, with the big fat stuff on on it, the and what I forgot what those are called, the tassels. The, I wanted to say the epaulets. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, smell them however you want. <laughs> you know, okay. Uh, so yeah, so generally we would dress more as civilian now, mm-hmm. and we don't mind having the ladies in the band. I mean, we have great musicians that are happen to be that the uh, fair gender. Mm-hmm. Um, and are you guys okay. mixed instrumentation in terms of woodwind and brass, or are you purely brass in in the band? Uh, in the past, we have, uh, like I mentioned, Tim Holmes before. Mm-hmm. He would play his his uh, simple system uh, piccolo. Mm-hmm. He did not pick up uh, brass instrument. Yeah. Um, we do have woodwind players posing as brass players, though. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, one of the people that started since '85, who eventually became our business manager for twenty something years, uh, he's originally a clarinet and bassoon player. Here we go back with the bassoons. <laughs> <laughs> But he studied bassoon. He was in, in clarinet at you know high levels of, of of education, but he knew how to play brass. And yeah. he had actually started as a storyteller. He, he quit being a band director to be a storyteller, mm-hmm. and having to pick up this one particular tenor horn a couple of years prior to starting with this band. He's still with us, thank God. Mm-hmm. He's a good man to have, but he doesn't. Uh, he never fancied himself a brass player ever, but he knew how to play at least, you know, the mid, mid-range parts and certainly mm-hmm. the tenor part. Yeah, nice. Um, and that's just one instance. Some people just like to play brass because they can. So, I mean, we are a very well-traveled band. We strive to uphold the same reputation as the original Dodworth band. You know, we've played uh, in places like the, uh, oh, several of the states. You can see a lot of this on our website, which I'll give later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we played for the opening of the Baseball Hall of Fame back in 1994. And since while we were there for the president at the time, Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can be heard on three of Ken Burns' films. One is baseball, and uh, with uh, this, uh, nobody has a cassette player anymore. But I happen to have a recorder recording of old-time baseball songs with Ernie Harwell uh, being the announcer. So you'll hear a few of these tracks from the mid '90s on from this uh, cassette hmm. on his baseball um, documentary, the opening of the Jazz. And then recently it was the Roosevelt's, which is one of his more recent films in the nice. last uh, 10 years or so or less. Hmm. Uh, we kept, I've kept as busy and sometimes we're the busiest of the 19th century uh, brass bands of this, of this uh, time period, mm-hmm. up to even 70 concerts per year. Wow. If you imagine that. And we so we and we actually even though we're a five hundred one c three we we pull in a could pull in a six figure revenue. I'm not saying how many. Um, 
We've had a couple of spinoffs, including a W a Cyclone high, high Wheel Band, where people are sitting on those Benny Farthings. You remember those things? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. You got the you got the nine foot wheel in the front and the two inch wheel in the back. You know. Yeah. Yeah. But they're playing they're playing their horns on top of that or drums nice. or whatever they got. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy like that. As well as our Dodworth duo, which happens to be one of our uh, actor singers, uh, plays guitar and uh, uh, one of the and several of the sopranos, well, one at a time. You know, so it'd be a duo, and they would sometimes go out and sing and play. And nearly all of the music that we gather is from 19th century. Uh, we have a couple from the 18th century, like uh, Christmas tunes, mm-hmm. <laughs> and a couple of 20th century ones that the uh, Greenfield Village has made. Uh, or is asked, requested uh, an arrangement for. Mm-hmm. So uh, I get called for that. Um, there are about 422 20 titles in the book, and about half of them are my arrangements or edits, edit editions. Nice. Yeah. That's how many I've done so for the band. Very Our nice. band, they tune at, a, at A447 or 448. Uh, back then, uh, in that time period, nothing was really nailed down in, ter- in terms of how to what band or i mean what general note you tune to uh the military like the higher pitch of it mm-hmm. although with this the cornet model it it did not it it would say oh sorry they it would be bright but it would still be mellow enough to not be so bright you had to turn away mm-hmm. with, with with the conical sound yeah uh but it could get higher of course or lower according to weather you know about uh, how, how many members are are in the organization slash how many are used usually on a performance? Oh, uh, we keep a um, roster, almost said like corral, of uh, <laughs> 50, 50 uh, people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we use at maximum 17, and that would be 14 brass and percussion, plus, with percussion, and then two singers plus a director. Gotcha. And that way we can whittle it down to uh, an eight top if you need it. So there would be no percussion, just eight brass players. Gotcha. Uh, so anywhere between that eight and the 17. Mm-hmm. And it could be, a, uh, even with the eight, if you wanted to have an announcer separate, so that'd be nine people, mm-hmm. you could do that. Or t- 10 piece would at least include percussion mm-hmm. and so on. Um, now, uh, I remember one of your questions said, asked, if, are we reenactors? Actually, no. Since we don't, like I said, we don't affiliate with any kind of brass, uh, excuse me, military idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the type of people we do have in our group, a good majority, believe it or not, are band directors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whether they're currently working or retired, it's quite a quite a number of them. So, and we have a good mix of amateur to pro as well. And, and of course, there's being... Um, uh, we and we what we do instead of being tied to a reenaction reenacting stuff. I mean, I don't think any any of us really want to get syphilis on purpose, you know, or get <laughs> shot at. Because I've heard of those stories. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah there's accidents. Yeah. I don't. I'm not talking accident. The people are getting shot by, for real with real ammo. <laughs> okay. True. Yeah. You know, be out in the middle of uh, the briar field as, as, per se. And they're getting shot at with all of these, you know, these guns, which have no particular accuracy whatsoever, you know, and, and uh, yeah, they're getting and they're even getting the diseases of the day. And I'm like, OK, to each his own. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stay. I'll, I'll keep, stay over here. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. 
right? So no, we're not real, but we strive instead to bring the entertainment and, you know, in, in terms of using a segment, it's kind of somewhat vaudevillian in scope, but the idea is to write these theatrical segments such that they include a topic of the day. It could be, uh, uh, oh, really anything. And it could be, so we could talk about, like, say, um, um, sorry, uh, maritime, or it could be, uh, no, nobody's allowed to drink or so or smoke or something like that, or it's a whole variety of things. You know, mm -hmm. talk about women in during the, the battlefields, or even the children of the battlefields. Now, there's a fabulous story for another day. Uh, so, and like I'm talking, about, and then include music to surround that kind of thing. So we had like even so segments about Lincoln. You know, Lincoln was kind of a depressed guy. So, mm -hmm. but we try to include some things that he that he would really tune into, such as Dixie. Or uh, this really somber song called um, "Your Mission," and some other things that he would be known for. He like he, he always liked to joke about. I don't even know two two uh, church church hymns. One's called "The Old Hundredth," the other one isn't. <laughs> okay, mm -hmm. that's that's out of one of his. That's one of his papers. Um, so we, in that sense, we still try to model ourselves after the Dodworth in terms of you know being a premier band. Uh, national reputation, which I think we've accomplished by now. This is we, it's the 36th year for us. Maybe we can yeah. jump into uh, how you became involved after your master's with the band and, and what your role is with the band currently. So, uh, like, so I'm back from college, obviously. As I'm playing wherever I can, and I'm, have, I'm working a little bit. My dad was a plumber, mm -hmm. so the family joke is that he installs it, I play it. <laughs> the plumbing, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. okay. Because I got, I mean, if you look, you, you just look behind me, you can see all the plumbing kind of sticking up out of the, out of the yeah, furniture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got like you can see like three of my four baritones, a sack, uh, like a couple of horns sticking up, some bugles and whatnot. Yeah, nice. And there's a few tubas laying around somewhere. Any rate, <clears throat> excuse me. So about um, in uh, 1997, fall when the fall season started, I got invited to play with Macomb Symphony, as a local regional orchestra. I was play, invited to play horn. Play French horn there. I played first, uh, excuse me, principal. Uh, that same time period, Paul Ekus, I don't know if you've ever met or talked with him. Uh, he's a trombonist, but he was the director for both the Dodworth Bandit in that time, as well as for Michigan Chamber Brass, something that, that was uh, kind of modeled on the Philip Jones idea, uh, brass ensemble okay. idea. Mm -hmm. Okay. So hiring top notch players such as professors from local universities, you know, regional universities, as well as some people from Detroit Symphony or others. And then there, and there was even me in there, which is interesting, mm. <laughs> but it was fun to play. So I was invited to play. Uh, I remember my, my old horn teacher from EMU, he said, you should play in this Michigan chamber brass, fall of 97. So I do that. And uh, Paul Ekus is the one directing, like I said, Another thing that kind of was weird is I get this weird notion, hey, I want to sing again, because I had sung with my dad in a choir, in a mm -hmm. German choir. Mm -hmm. But now everything uh, in terms of any kind of tenor voice kind of dropped in the basement, as you can probably hear now. 
you know, it's like, this is my high range. This is my low range. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I, yeah, I really sing soprano. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I hear about this men's chorus called Measure for Measure, uh, directed by the choral director at EMU at the time was Leonard Racintel, who has passed now several weeks, uh, 2006. And I decided to go there to uh, to find out what their next concert is. It happened to be a joint concert with, of all things, Dodworth Saxhorn Band. Hmm. But I had no idea. I just know to show up show up at this particular time, and I get there so late. Dodworth Band, I barely catch the tail end of them as they're leaving. You know, I don't even I don't think I saw a horn. I only saw like I could only remember like one face, and that was Mike Darren, because uh, he was still getting off stage. Uh, one of the members of Dodworth Band. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, whatever. I didn't, I just not paying attention to that at all until after the, then when I finally read the program, I'm like, because remember I'd seen like, uh, I'd asked Jay, my tuba teacher, you know, give me a call if he needed a sub mm-hmm. for Dodworth a couple years back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm like, what? That was Dodworth? Uh, <laughs> nuts. Oh, well, <laughs> sorry. But I did end up joining the men's chorus the next day and I was with them a few years and that was fun. I would just go in the back, you know, of the room and start rumbling. <laughs> that was my thing, you know, rumble in the back with the basses, you know. There you go. Fast forward, I get a call over the the, the, the so ensuing winter. Hey, you want to play in the Dogwood Band? I'm like, sure, why not? You know, I'm guessing Paul liked my playing because he from Michigan Chamber Brass and J.R. Smith, mm-hmm. former tuba teacher who had passed now a few years back, uh, it probably endorsed it. Says, yeah, you should have uh, Bernie come play, you know. So I show up to rehearsal, not really knowing what to expect, you know. Yeah. And they give me a horn, that the same thing. horn that where I was at that one private shop. Yeah, yeah, the, the E flat. So out of tune. The guy says, I don't know how you managed to play any kind of scale on that silly thing. <laughs> and that's the one I've been playing since. And that was February 20th in 1998. Nice. And months later... <laughs> We go to make our first CD recording. So I'm right. learning this thing by, by baptism, by fire. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and here it is. Here it is for you. You know, 1860s, probably a French import, mm-hmm. uh, Berliner valves. And I'll just give you an idea. So let me play a scale the way it is now. I'm not going to move any slides except for the valves. Okay. All right. <laughs> Something and like that. You guys are, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you guys are both brass players. You know, I played just to see what we see written scale, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't watch my fingers. You're going to get a headache now. Yeah, yikes. <laughs> <laughs> there are some alternate fingerings on here that just shouldn't exist. Yeah, yeah. The, the idea here is I when people ask me about this thing, I says, well, what do you do when you tune up? I said, well, tuning while the band is tuning is a spurious act. But tuning while the band is playing a tune, that's a whole nother ballgame. Yeah. I have to make a difference, like I said, between that guy and the basses way behind. Him. Right. So let me just play a little Gary Owen to give you an idea what I got to do with this thing. Sure. Yeah, 
So next time somebody in our band talks about uh, these instruments don't play in tune, I can't play it. We'll just uh, show them that clip and tell them that any any of these instruments yeah. can't. Yeah, I have never seen no so many excuse. alternate fingerings. Yeah, no excuse. Yeah, yeah, you have no excuse now. And I I have a hard time even excusing upper win upper brass players. Okay, now a lot of them are not that bad. That's that one's probably the worst in terms of tuning, but I love the sound of it. It's the most like. Oh yeah, thing. it's it sounded great. Yeah, thank you. So, but we have plenty of you know soprano. You know, B flat and E flat sopranos, but of course you can't do that stuff with the slide. There's not enough room for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm still thinking you got no excuse. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Okay, they're not gonna play like your modern day, you know, uh, silky or whatever you got. You know, take your pick. Okay, yeah, they're they're built with more refinement. They don't have those refinements when they're 150 years old. They're gonna play a lot differently. Matter of mm-hmm. fact, I call them all my little little animal, little babies. You know. <laughs> they all have their own temperaments. They all just, you know, when you're 150 years old, you're going to be kind of fickle anyway. Okay. <laughs> so is that now that alto, is that considered yours at this point or is that a band owned instrument? Man, I wish. <laughs> no, it's, it's owned by a, by an individual member in our group. We happens okay. to have one of the larger collections. That's then is not, not Alex Pollock. Alex Pollock has not been with the band since 94. There was a falling out at the time. Hmm. And uh, only only recently has he tried to bring back the group for like a, a summer concert, and a couple of people played, and then it's like, well, that's enough of that. <laughs> are the majority of the instruments that are played by the fifty or so members in the group band owned or privately owned or individually owned? Definitely a private mix of those. Mm-hmm. Um, I have that here somewhere. Definitely a private mix. Uh, band owned. We own about thirty so instruments. Then some people have owned their own their own, whether it's a single or a couple or several. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same person who owns who owns that horn, this this alto, mm-hmm. owns a, several baritones of different configurations. Gotcha. And even an E flat soprano cornopian. Hmm. You, you can imagine, you know, it's they're short enough as they are, mm-hmm. but then there's even less tubing in this particular one. You know, yeah, yeah, and it plays yeah. okay. It nice. really does, and it has a dark sound. Oddly enough, for an E flat, yeah, or no, yeah. I he let me play it a couple of times, and actually, I'm the one who found it. Mm-hmm. And I thought he he would, you know, loan it to the band, but he never actually did. He keeps it sitting up on his fireplace mm-hmm. mantle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nineteen hundred dollar fireplace mantle and decoration. All right, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> um, would you maybe be able to to tell us a little bit of the? Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe some of the notable band-owned instruments, if there's any with any notoriety yeah. or or that dedications. I mean, every band's going to have their own gems. I mean, I'm not going to name them all, but I got a good handful here I can tell you about. I mean, I used to curate the horns too. Mm-hmm. I get the previous guy, who happened to be a tuba player, only understood tubas and baritone. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And he had he had no patience for figuring out which one's a B flat alto or or a soprano or whatever. He had no patience for doing the job. Mm-hmm. So then, and I was a help him because I like, I like to have these things around, you know? Yeah, definitely. So, like, so having those in my house, when I finally took over as curator for the horns, and I was the first to get paid for this, it, uh, cause it is a lot of work, but at least when, then I could even further refine my skills as, uh, as an arranger for this group. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cause now I could sit home, sit at home, 
you know, play out, play on them as I want it to and figure out their limitations as well. And sometimes it happens to be the player, you know, True. Either yeah, the yeah. first adjustment for these horns, if something's wrong, it's the nut behind the mouthpiece. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> here's the mouthpiece. Here's the nut. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I got dry wood like that. Okay, so uh, we have a Fisk baritone. Uh, now, I don't know if you've seen this before, but Fisk at one point made these really oversized rotors and, in a triangle pattern. Okay. And um, what he did is he made he made it such that they were they looked like they were pistons on top of that, but it was just a, a cylindrical casing that held the spring. But he had this mix of a direct um, rod going through this little piston like casing with the spring in it to operate the rotor, which was on a string action. Hmm. Interesting. And uh, yeah, and it also had oh, an, in, an ingenious invention at the time. Uh, the w way to remove water. Now, water keys were already available on horns back in the 1830s. It's just not very commonly made. Okay, you know, with a little, whether it be a clapper valve mm -hmm. or something like that. The only horn that really had a, a, a water valve or spit valve was Schreiber. Yeah. He actually put a rounded ball of a valve in the middle of the, of the uh, tubing, and you would actually have to turn it using a lever to allow the, the uh, water to, to uh, be released. Mm -hmm. the only, that's the only spit valve I can actually come up with. Otherwise, they're water keys. You know, they just let some water out. Mm -hmm. Now, um, but in Fisk's case, Isaac Fisk, got a, uh, anyway, he came up with an idea where he would drill in the, in the uh, crook. So it was on the first and the third valve because the, the second valve went up over the valve on top of it. Uh, in the first and the third valve, he put a crook I mean, he drilled a small hole in the bottom of the crook and then um, took two small pieces of tubing that would that would fit very close to each other and soldered them up and under, underneath it. So then when it got to be full, all you had to do was take what, what would be kind of like a drip leg. And you just take this, this little cap off and then and then uh, empty it and then put it back over the hole. OK, and I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so and then we have. Oh, um, I'm going to play the uh, another one here in just a second. We have one that's uh, was owned by the Marine Band back in the day, hmm. and the the uh, pedigree with this is that it's possible that Lincoln heard this particular horn, and by extension even Dodworth, if you think about it. Mm -hmm. Okay, because they the 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 Marine Band being the oldest band played just as often as Dodworth did, if not more. I don't know, yeah. mm -hmm. and they still do. Okay. And that was about 1860s. We bought it from Mark Elrod uh, from New York at one of the, one of the shows way back in like 19 late 1990s. And it's an over-the-shoulder E-flat bass. So this was made by Christian Stark. And the metal, as you see, is a uh, nickel silver. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's actually rolled much thinner because the uh, nickel makes the brass oil alloy uh, stronger. Mm -hmm. So you can roll it much thinner. So if I were to weigh this thing, uh, it's probably about not even a gallon of milk, which is about eight and a half pounds, hmm. dripping wet. Yeah. Okay? yeah. Wow. It's so light. It's incredible, but it's held up so well over the years. And here's a here's a sample of it. Again, I got to hold it like a big old uh, roast beef sandwich or something. <laughs> 
the alternate fingerings coming into play on that guy too yeah a little bit not i mean not nice as much as the other one <laughs> if i wanted to i could do just like i would do on the other one but this mm. one holds its own pretty reasonably yeah. every once mm-hmm. in a while i definitely got to sit down there i mean it, it hurts my arm and my back oddly enough mm. to stretch my arm in front of me to, to move that main tuning slide yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. but uh so yeah so i just played you the horn and tuba just like my degree Right. <laughs> uh, moving on, uh, we have a J- John Lathrop Allen E flat over the shoulder alto uh, from about 1855, and it has four pinch rotors. Hmm. It's a setup of the three plus one, so three in the one hand and the one over here. Hmm. And the interesting thing is that it's actually an ascending valve. Oh, interesting. If you understand what ascending valve means or not, I'll explain it anyway. Ascending valve means that that piece of tubing is already in play before you depress the lever and then when you depress the lever it's actually bypassed so you cut off that length or so that's why it'd be ascending and it's considered like a drill valve it also makes for a night a lot of uh alternate <clears throat> fingerings combinations especially mm-hmm. if you're trying to play in tune mm-hmm. and as you can see these things you know they're not bad but they can be they can be mm-hmm. <laughs> okay so that was a real interesting find. That came in uh, as a set with another over-the-shoulder I'll tell you about in a minute. Uh, we have an anonymous B-flat upright Berliner. So a little thing like that mm-hmm. with Berlin valves, and it's a B-flat cornet. And if you look on my Facebook page, you'll see it. I played it this past last summer. Um, we have a Leonard E-flat alto. And a B flat tenor. Now they're built very tall, uh, such that the Leonard, the tenor, is almost three feet tall. Hmm. It's incredibly long. Okay, it's not fairly skinny, but he just made the tubing such that it would be stretched out. And even the alto looks like more like a tenor horn itself, with a really wide bell and and uh, the flare. Okay, hmm. uh, and the the uh, tenor also has pinch rotor since it's. Uh, but I mean, the Allen valves, as you might say, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have an anonymous double B flat bass, three valves. It's also an upright, so mm-hmm. it looks a bit more like your modern day tuba, which is yeah. three little three Berliners in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, something I found for like nine hundred bucks. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, as curator, that was certainly my job was to beef up the inventory, and I did. I think I did a decent job of it. Uh, we have a Bauer E flat upright bass, which has top action rotors in the same spot now that one's a nice that one's a really nice compact tuba uh really be good for a solo work if you really want to try now that one the over the shoulder is not bad um because it's so it's so iconic you nobody nobody gets to see it too often so i get a lot of oohs and ahs for that thing we do have three three uh horns that are marked dodworth themselves one's a b flat soprano looks like your common art uh day uh, cornet with the shepherd's crooks oh, yeah. 
and the double wishbone. And it's Mark Allen. So something you might see in our band's method, you know, one of those cornets with your Paranay pistons. And it was marked uh, Alan Dodworth on the on, on the uh, engraving. Hmm. And then we have an over-the-shoulder alto. That one was part of the set with the uh, Allen over-the-shoulder four-valver. This was a three-valver. Again, also both of them were nickel silver. Um, three, uh, and this is a, even though you play it sideways, it's still top, considered top action. Mm-hmm. Rotary valves and it's also string action. And that one's marked Harvey Dodworth on with a shield, and it's probably made made by Stratton because I think Stratton or his workers made the same shield. Since Dodworths never actually built their own horns by themselves, gotcha. they, they would uh, get someone else to do it. And then we have a most recently as a B flat valve trombone with three rotors, which also and it's in brass, not nickel silver, but it does have uh, the sh- the same shield uh, shape i want to say mm-hmm. with uh, harvey's name again but on the now uh and then like i said so the, the band that, those are band owned gems per se and then people have their a lot uh, several people have their own Okay, so in terms of arranging for the Dodworth, I told him a couple of months in after we did the recording. If you want me, if you want somebody to do some arrangements, please feel call me. Mm-hmm. So summer of 1999, since I started in '98, he gives me a, my first audition assignment. Mozart's I didn't find enough to see. Mm-hmm. The Dodworth band? Okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently everybody liked it, you know, and we still use it here and there. You know, and so and then he got since he liked it, he had me writing more stuff, even including in Christmas stuff, as as uh, was whenever they requested something, and it, and they actually they actually paid me a little bit to do my work, do the work, and uh, uh, and now uh, to arrange stuff that's that would sound more, I guess, period appropriate. I can't say authentic, because that's really somebody's opinion. I would say period appropriate. And it took a couple of duds, you know. Before I got the style just right, but I didn't. And I was still interjecting some of my 20th century uh, proclivities, I suppose. Not not ridiculous, but they would be tasty. Yeah, yeah, of course. I don't. I don't really like cheat to cheese up a piece. I, I can't stand that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was basically thinking 20th century kind of mode. So some of my early arrangements for Dodworth, outside of that Mozart, have this uh, uh, feeling of well, it's not really 19th century. And other people that we've hired as a, uh, occasionally to do an arrangement definitely don't follow that idea. Mm-hmm. They do what they know from what they know now. Yeah. So you get a lot of stuff that sounds like 1980s and 70s and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like I said, oh, yeah. So uh, like I said, half, we have half the titles that are in the book are filtered, per se, through me. And I mean, they kept coming back for more. I'm like, okay, sure. So I have edited lots of stuff too, where the music was so faded, you didn't know what was the note and what was oh, yeah. the bar line or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, 
you get plenty of um, examples of that, or even a photo negative copies, white notes on uh, black paper. Right. What? <laughs> you know? yeah. By 2000, like I said, I was finally the instrument curator, so that helped me refine the arrangements. So if you want me to just I'll give one, uh, like five minutes on the process and approach, it's basically like most people. First of all, don't do any harm. Okay. Mm -hmm. I try to play with original intent, at least at first. If you change anything, like a key or a tempo, I try to not cheese it up too badly, mm -hmm. you know. And, uh, I, and I also want to keep things where it's not too boring because I've seen a lot of stuff where I, I certainly need to learn the voices and the voice voicing roles, you know, your, your orchestration. The, I guess the aspect has changed a little bit because you, you can't just give low parts to an alto. That mm -hmm. doesn't work in this band, okay? Yeah. And I know people who want to write in the basement for the alto part. And I'm like, we don't have those notes. I'm like, what's the point? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I've even come up for uh, for one guy. I finally had to write it down when he gave us a couple of arrangements that were like that. I said, here's a scoring guide. Please use it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. yeah. Seriously. I mean, it was bad. We're writing. You don't write low E for an alto horn with three vowels, please. Yeah, that's true. Okay. The, you can do a much more better, much better sound quality and a homogenous sound quality on a larger instrument that has that note in their regular normal range. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then if we're, a lot of stuff, we have a lot of titles that are vocal pieces. So that changes a lot of, it's a whole other set of problems. So now you got to know what kind of person you're dealing with. You know, if they're going to be a diva or lack thereof, thank God, if we have some. <laughs> Seriously, you, get, you can go both ways. I mean, it, Diva is not a gender specific term. Mm -hmm. yeah. Definitely. Definitely. And neither is pro or, or professional or amateur. Mm -hmm. But we've dealt with all, I've sometimes dealt with all three in one person. <laughs> um, you know, professional amateur diva. So, <laughs> you know, and uh, so, and then you got to think, that, you know, how is this voicing paired to nowadays? Well, you, you mentioned the brass quintet. Well, in brass quintet, you know, you, you pretty much can write in any key equally, right? But, you got to think so it's, some keys are more equal than others. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so an E flat band works better as a, uh, a flat key band. I mean, we can play a couple of chords, but we don't want to be staying in G major yeah. if we're an E flat band for the entire tune. Okay. Mm -hmm. So learn, learn to figure it out some other way without getting muddy. Some people want to write stuff so dang low, it gets ridiculously muddy. And mm -hmm. so you, and you don't have the, you don't have the uh, low range. You know, you can't write A flat for a bass that's below the step because it's not there. Yeah. Okay. You can't expect everyone to have four vowels. They did make some with four vowels, but not all of them. Yeah. 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 So you can't, can't, ex you cannot expect that kind of thing. Uh, and I also learned to uh, do engraving by hand. I mean, literally, measures, mm -hmm. that word measure is not uh, by circumstance. It's, I literally had to measure out measures mm -hmm. before I wrote one note. Sometimes it takes me a whole hour to set up an entire page. Or put one note head in. Wow. So and yeah. and uh, so in comparison to a quintet, I mean, I'm just expanding upon how is this going to fit when we have a 14 piece band. I mean, you're just looking at something, right? <laughs> yeah. You got to know how to pick it apart. And then what is it? And then if I, I'm also writing percussion parts too. Yeah. Well, there's no there's no indication. Of, okay, play drum here, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. That kind of thing. So what I'm really doing is expanding it to fit the style and the scoring needed, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. I was going to queue up vacant chair, but uh, as one example, that's okay. 
And recently I'm doing a reconstruction of uh, a, a band, uh, it's called the Ellsworth Band out of Maine. Now, nothing to do with uh, the uh, soldier that died. That was friend, the first casualty of Civil War, having to be friends with uh, Lincoln as well. Now, it was Ellsworth, Maine, and they had their own little band. And uh, I got a set of parts from Yari Villanueva. He says, I ain't got time to do these. You want to do them? Hmm. So here's a little chart. You know, as you can see, there's a lot of pieces, mm -hmm. a lot of books missing. Mm -hmm. Okay. From what's uh, just an X. So yeah. I'm taking like from what I have and whatever I'm filling in, I'm trying to match the style from between what's there, what they're giving me through those clues and what I know from the last 20 some years yeah. of doing it. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten about this. There was 15 and some of these books, like as you can see, they don't have all the parts. Yeah. You know, yeah. And obviously there's three there that I'm writing it for the Vodworth's uh, full band. Mm -hmm. Um, there's three books that are just non-existent. Yeah. Okay. And one is one. Sometimes there's even just partial measures or a lot of mistakes. Yeah, People had to write their own, mm -hmm. and write their own parts in their own books. And so, if you're not that educated, it, it shows. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely for sure. And some of the markings are really foreign to me. And even though I know how to read some of that old script and and their markings, but the way they the way they do it in these books, especially this one, is real real interesting. Yeah, an interesting wow. challenge. So, huh. and then uh, uh, you ask about playing period arrangements. I would say mostly from the band folders I mentioned, like these oleos. Mm -hmm. Here's the oleos from before. Yeah. Out of those books and the ones that the editings I've done. Um, as in terms of authenticity, well, we strive to maintain as much of it as possible, but it's our interpretation of what's authentic, you know, through our research. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily someone else's someone else's so it kind of boils down to what we know and we can base our opinion on maybe as a, a way of kind of tying a nice bow on the end of the interview proper here i was wondering what your thoughts are what your opinions are in terms of having this music or these bands kind of exist in now the 21st century, what their value is and why you think uh, they should continue to exist and people continue playing and listening to this music. Uh, if you've seen our website recently, it's been updated. It's much more user-friendly. Uh, they can explain that question about as good as I can right now. It, it is relevant and meaningful because it is our history. It is our heritage, even though it was imported, but it landed here and we made it our, our own. Mm -hmm. And that the fact that it's not even taught in school. And, a matter of, and another thing is when I looked up, I forgot the year when New York Phil was um, founded. Mm -hmm. And if you go on their website, it says, you know, New York Phil founded in 1842 by UC or Urelli Corelli Hill and some local musicians. <laughs> they totally blow off 60 years of Dodworth influence, yeah. including to that group. Granted, it's one of the oldest orchestras, uh, full orchestra that we know, uh, you know, as the, in, in that capacity. Because you know orchestras back in the other and before then were fairly more chamber orchestras, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, like eighteen thirty or something. So whenever Beethoven 
finally expanded it and swore and some other people finally expanded it to have you know a full faction of winds expanded strings all the percussion you could possibly imagine mm-hmm. during that time okay but it, it's relevant and meaningful to know this because it is our history yeah i mean the dodworth band really does a, a great job of um you know preserving and advocating for uh for that you know band history and band culture that we have in the united states um and so where where can people go uh online if they're looking to find out more about uh the band and the recordings that you guys have made and all that kind of stuff definitely go to our website it's called dodworth.org we have a booking agent now it's grant great lakes performing artists association if you're interested in booking we used to do just the great lakes the, the lake the states that touch the Great Lakes, so between New York and Minnesota, bordering the Great Lakes. But now we're, we've finally gone national because of the uh, COVID issue. We said, heck, we can't limit ourselves to that, that little bit. Mm-hmm. So there's a number right there, as well as a website, www.greatlakespaa.org. Performance options, as you can see here on the card, for a full 14-piece band, which I said, like I said, we can break break down to as little as eight pieces uh, again give aileen uh, rower a call at the great lakes performing artists association we have we can make concerts with vocalists doing sung as well as scripted segments on baseball lincoln temperance women of the civil war children of the civil war making of america type things uh, all kinds of different subjects we have about tw- at least 20 close to 30 different segments we can uh, nice. present to you mm-hmm. uh, we can certainly be a strolling band we don't have to be set in one spot we can be standing up and then move to another spot kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, we can uh, we can do parades short ones don't make us march more than a half a mile please <laughs> <laughs> uh, civil war or victorian balls we even recently tried to do one that was called a bustle ball so that was music between the late 19th century, so we'll say between 1890s to 1920s. Mm-hmm. So, and I did a few arrangements. That, that's when they were still mixing Victorian music, but having some more of this newer stuff, like even some jazz influences, mm-hmm. uh, mixed into the ballroom. And we have mm-hmm. people who who are dance professionals. They come out of Cincinnati. Uh, Forget me and not dancers is their name. Uh, they're fabulous. They know how to teach all these dances and they perform the dances themselves and demonstrate them. So we can customize stuff to fit your event, uh, events. Yeah. And, and with my own self, if you want to get a hold of me, so and you can uh, call me. I don't have a website, but I do have my own email address, which is BLK Brass Monkey. Spell the monkey part with no E at hotmail.com. Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, if you want, if you have any, if you want me to do any arrangements, I'll be glad to help you out. I mean, I I do have a fee for that. We can talk mm-hmm. about for sure. Um, and I'll and I'll try to accommodate your scoring as much as I can. Thank you for your time speaking with Stephen and us giving you giving us your time uh, talking about your background, your experience with the Dieworth Saxhorn Band, the history of the band your process with arranging, you know, it's all been really awesome and insightful and we're excited to share it with people. So thank you for, for everything. 
Oh, it was, uh, it was a pleasure to do so. Thank you again so much to Bernhard Kirchner for coming on to the show. It was awesome getting to hear the history of the Dogworth Saxhorn Band, the history of that family and Harvey and Alan, uh, as well as a lot of the information pertaining to the current Dogworth Saxhorn Band currently up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So thank you so much, Bernhard, for coming on. Yeah, definitely. We really can't thank him enough for taking the time out of his day to speak with us, and we really enjoyed getting to talk with him. If you like what you're hearing, as we said at the top of the episode, you can support us on Patreon and Teespring. We're also on all social media platforms, and we have a YouTube channel as well, uh, where we've released uh, full episodes and then smaller, uh, you know, excerpted parts of the episodes as well. Um, so that way, you know, if you have an hour and a half or if you only have 10 minutes, we've got a video for you. <laughs> so you can go to our YouTube page and subscribe there. That really helps the show out. This episode's featured album is from Dogwart Saxhorn Band. It's their album titled Traditions of the Season. This is a holiday album that was put out by the band, uh, one of their most recent releases, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and even though this episode is releasing in April, this is a holiday album, but we are selecting it because actually all the arrangements on the album are of Bernhard's arrangements that he was able to do. So if you would like to hear an album of all of his music uh, and get into the holiday spirit, go on over to the show notes on our website. Uh, we'll provide a link directly to the Dyworth Sa- Saxhorn Band's website where you can purchase Traditions of the Season. Thank you so much for tuning in. We look forward to seeing you next episode. Mm-hmm.